Hi, everyone. Thanks for checking out the Thrive Podcast. We are the Young Adult Ministry at Maranatha Bible Church, and we meet on Wednesdays at 730 in our Family Life Center. If you enjoy this podcast, we'd love for you to post it to your Instagram story and tag us at NBC Thrive on Instagram. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. Uh, thank you, Ethan. That was really good, and I really appreciate that. Um, What's funny about that song is the last song that we sang, Beautiful Things, some of you know, is actually by a band that doesn't believe in Jesus anymore. And um, I read the article of why they didn't, and the person was saying, like, you know, how can a good God let bad things happen in the world? Because if there was a good God and he cared about us and had good things, you know, bad things wouldn't happen anymore. Um, And there is some emotional merit to that argument Um, And the real thing that we can talk about tonight is that as we go through life, sometimes it doesn't matter necessarily what what we know. It matters what what we know about God and what God knows about us. Um, And you don't need sometimes somebody to tell you like, oh, everything's going to be okay. Oh, life is going to get better. You need somebody who's going to commiserate and kind of go through it with you to be heard more than to be known. Um, welcome to Thrive, and if you're depressed now, just get ready. No, I'm just kidding. Um, a couple side notes to mention. I did have pants today, and then I was walking around. I was like, there is a hole right in my pant leg. So um, that's why I look like I just stumbled off the street out of the open door. So here I am. Um, if you're new to Thrive, welcome. If you're not new to Thrive, you were here, yes, last week when I said all um, whales are fish. And thank you to the 20,000 of you that came up to me and decided to let me know that based on my ignorance of basic mammalian taxonomy that whales were indeed mammals. So in case you were here and you were so frustrated you left the church because I said that, I was wrong, I was wrong. The point holds true, but I was wrong. Whales are mammals, are not fish. So, um, How many of you had off school for Labor Day? Wow, nice. So I hope that was nice for you, it was nice for me. Um, how many of you completely squandered it and didn't do any schoolwork like you should, probably should have been doing? Okay, half of you. The other half are like, no, I'm a good student. Okay, whatever. Um, okay, anyway, before we start and kind of talk about where we're going to go into, although it's already on the screen, there's an old Persian adage that I heard probably, honestly, two weeks ago, and it was a Persian king who asked his scholars to write him an expression of something that would never be different that would always be the same, something that he could say no matter what was going on. And they thought about it, they thought about it, and they told the king something, and he liked it so much he inscribed it on a ring. They said, this too shall pass. They said, it doesn't matter what's going on right now. This too shall pass. And what that means basically is that like if he was at a party, right, having the best time of his life, that wishes would never end. This too shall pass. If he were, you know, just in the dumps and frustrated and just didn't see any hope or any end to this frustration or his suffering, this too shall pass. And he loved that so much he put it on a ring because it reminded him of the temporality of life, of the transitory nature that life is. Um, and so to kind of give this a biblical, you know, background, it's just Christian talking right now. If you have your Bible, open up to Ecclesiastes 1. We're going to go through the whole chapter. We're going to start a new um, series through Ecclesiastes. I always think it's a good thing to do in the fall because Ecclesiastes is not one of those Bible books that you read and you're like, wow, you know, this is easy to understand and it's great. Ecclesiastes kind of sucks sometimes and it kind of doesn't paint life as this beautiful picture of you know, just jumping through rose fields all the time, it kind of makes it seem like life is 
um, while vain, and we're gonna talk about all of that. Um, and today this book is gonna talk about how humanity is transitory in a mist. The word used for vanity, as you're gonna see there, is the Hebrew word that's the same as a breath or a mist or a vapor. And have you ever been driving in the morning, even this morning I think it was foggy and my windows were foggy, right? And then I left, there was no more fog, right? Why? Because fog is transitory. Um, if I got a spray bottle and sprayed it up here, would that mist just be up there floating around, make a little cumulonimbus cloud up there? No. Why? Because it's transitory. It's here one moment. You can't grab it. You can't grab a hold of it. It's something that I spray. It's something that happens. And there's just, there's nothing there, right? And so that's what Solomon, that's the translation of this word vanity, vanity, mist, vapor, worthless, um, vanity. There's nothing there. There are points where this book, Ecclesiastes, is written from somebody who's like a theological moralist, or there's a God and he loves us and he has a plan and this is the reason we should do good things. There's parts of this book where written by someone it feels like who's agnostically nihilist. There's no point in the world, everything sucks, it doesn't matter, there's no discernible reason or rule or rhyme, you know, there's no reason. And then there are also points of this book where it's written by a theologically experiential dude who understands what the Bible says, but all he's after is an experience. All he's after is a taste of fulfillment, of purpose, of meaning. And this is why this book is important because uh, how many of you had Socratic seminars, let's say, in high school or something like that? Okay, I'm going to explain to you what a Socratic seminar is. Um, a Socratic seminar is when a teacher would say something, but she wouldn't say what the right thing was. She would say, like, what do you guys think about this? And all together we would kind of fight, not fight, argue, debate, whatever, on a certain point, and then together we would try to find out what was actually meant. So that we, we would do that all the time in language arts. You know, what did he mean by this? And we would talk through, well, it says in this part of the book, well, it says in this part of the book, well, what does it mean that these, this part seems different from this part? Yeah, I know, but this part actually makes sense when you read it about through this whole part. And so what that did is that instead of somebody just telling us what we should believe, we had to fight for it ourselves. We had to think through it ourselves, and then it helped our understanding. And I think that that's kind of what Solomon is doing here. Some, you know, there are crazy things you read about Ecclesiastes, and I think what was the best way to read it is kind of like this huge Socratic seminar where he's just kind of throwing stuff out there, and you're supposed to fight with it yourself. He says stuff in this book that you don't know how it's in the Bible, I swear. He says in this book, um, be not overly wicked nor overly righteous, okay? How many of you have heard a message on why you're not supposed to be too good in church? Okay, that's what I thought, <laughs> right? Uh, I thought the whole point of this thing was to be good, right? He says, don't be overly righteous. He says, uh, bread is uh, something about bread, wine, wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. How many of you have heard a sermon in church about how money answers everything? <laughs> wow, good, okay. I don't want to go to that church, no. But like, listen, when we read this in the Bible, in the Ecclesiastes, he's using this as a point where we're supposed to use this and kind of fight with it ourselves. Um, and so we're going to start, um, and I'm, I'll say this, a final thing, just because two opposing things seem contradictory doesn't mean they are. And we have a, we have a life, for example, when the sun rises and the sun sets. I look at the sun, it rises, and I look at the sun, it sets. From my perspective, that's as true about the sun as it can. Now, does the sun actually rise and set? No, right? It just, the earth is rotating and it appears from our vantage point that the sun is rising and setting. But knowing what happens at a cosmological level influences my understanding of what happens at my earthly level, right? Oh, so it's not actually rotating, it's just the way that the planet is moving. But also, the way that it works at this 
intrinsically experiential level helps me understand what's happening as well from a cosmological level. So all that to say, just because two things seem different in the Bible, in the book, in life, doesn't mean they have to be one or the other. And Ecclesiastes is all going to be about that. With that in mind, we're going to start Ecclesiastes 1 through 8 with this very encouraging word here. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Preach. You know, I could end it there. That is, to me, I I love Ecclesiastes, in case you guys didn't know. Um, You're either in one of two camps. You love Ecclesiastes or you hate it. It makes no sense to you. Um, But I I think we can all say that there are times in our life where this feels, this hits you at a different spot where life all of a sudden doesn't seem to make sense, okay? What are Solomon's four issues, okay? If you're taking notes, he's using these four examples to illustrate the supposed vanity of life. Number one, why is life vain? Because people are born and they die. He doesn't understand why people are born, right? And I feel this intrinsic, he says later in the book, people are born with eternity in their heart, and there's just this immortal thing that's right behind the surface, right? And I just see it. And people are born, and there's people I love, and there's people that I care about, and then they die. That's not fair. C.S. Lewis says that that's so unfair that it's like we're all at a dance, dancing around, and all of a sudden the music stops. Somebody comes in and brutally murders somebody right in front of us, and we look at it like this. And then we just go back to dancing. And then somebody else gets murdered, and we just look at it like that, right? Because we're just having a good time. We just act like life is going to go on forever. And when death happens, it's a shock. How could this happen? How could something happen? Solomon's like, how are people born and then they die? Why do we have this desire? Why do we have this understanding that people are eternal? He says the sun goes up and then down. And then up and then down. And I don't understand why the sun is going to go up and then it's going to go down. It's going to go up and going to go down. You feel like the sun is always good. The sun is something that we need. These cyclical understandings of natural events, right, he doesn't understand why, why it's just cyclical. It seems like there's no purpose to it. He doesn't understand why the wind blows around and around. He doesn't understand why all the streams run to the sea and the sea are not full. Question. If I had a bucket, now this is American, so we're thinking all naturalists. Well, technically, I don't want the well technically. I want the why it feels like this. If I go to the kitchen sink and I run a bucket full of water, if I go back, is the bucket going to be empty or is it going to be full? Full. Good, Miles. You're, you're on top of it today. Let's, that's right. But that's his issue. Why do all the streams run to the sea and the sea is not full? All the streams should run to the sea and then eventually start overflowing, right? This is an idea that he has in his head. Now, does Solomon care naturalistically why that these things happen? Does he want to know about aquifers? No, he doesn't care about that crap, right? These are the issues. He doesn't know. This is the second one. This is the same four, but kind of his questions behind it. Why are people born to die? Why does the sun come up just to go down? Why do the winds blow around and around without any purpose? And why do all streams run to the sea, yet the sea never fills? 
He doesn't care, naturally. He doesn't care. He doesn't want to know the science behind it, right? Because if he did, he would have probably done something about it. He cares about, and this is the quintessential theme of the entire book. If you remember something from tonight, he cares about why we as humans have an expectation that is completely different from our experienced reality, okay? If life is truly meaningless, right, and he's talking about, I see the sun, I see the winds, I see the seas, and people die. If life is truly meaningless, okay, why do have humans been trying to invent meaning from the beginning? Why do we care about making meaning from a life that is absolutely, at its fundamental core, meaningless? And I'm not going to get into any science tonight, but if I were, I would say, if you believe that 13.8 billion years ago there was a big bang and it wasn't caused by anything and then these natural mutations just formed and kind of built on each other and then you have this life that originates for some reason and then it just kind of builds and by, by accident, by chance, by trial, by error, all of a sudden it makes a fish and then another billion years happen or a million years happen and then all of a sudden it makes a, something that can crawl on the land and then a monkey and then a whale and then a fish and then a dinosaur and then you and me, right? And life has been intrinsically meaningless why do humans have this desire for meaning, right? And that's a question that if you're not a Christian in this room, you have to grapple with. And if you're not a Christian and you say, I know the answer, come up to me because I want to talk to you because I want to know what, what makes, what gets you out of bed in the morning? I don't want to invent my own meaning. Why? That's Solomon's number one issue. Why does life seem so utterly meaningless but yet I have this desire for meaning? People are born and they die and I say, that's not fair. That's all they've been doing for the past million years. What are you upset about, right? That's Solomon's issue. It shouldn't seem unfair, but it seems unfair. We have a need to belong, to be remembered, not to be forgotten. I was going to recite my first poem here, but I'm probably not going to recite too many poems. But uh, there's a poem by uh, Shelley called Ozymandias, where on the, uh, he goes to Egypt, see these legs or legs of stone in the desert, and it says, Here lies Ozymandias, king of kings. Look upon my works, ye mighty, in despair. And the poem ends, Nothing remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretched far away. And so we have this king who wrote this immortal, he did tons of work. Look upon my works, ye mighty, in despair. And Shelley says, There's nothing here, right? Why does this king have a need to be remembered and yet is forgotten? and yet we forget him. Why is life intrinsically feels meaningless, and why do people have this search for meaning? And Solomon is not, is, oh, I always have this here as well. Um, science tells you how it is, not why it is, and that's the issue of a religion. Science can tell you how something is the way it is. Science is going to look at the earth and tell you how the earth is. Science is going to look at stars and tell you how fast light travels and um, what happens to light as it bends around gravitational objects and how, 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 how. Science isn't going to tell you why it's like that. Why is a question for religion to answer. So science and religion aren't fighting each other. You don't have to make a choice. No, I either have to believe in science or believe in religion. No. They go hand in hand. Science tells you how something is. Religion tells you why it is. And it's a problem with religion when religion tries to tell you how, and it's a problem with science when science tries to tell you why. They have their separate arenas. They're completely different. Um, And this doesn't pit science versus religion. It helps them work together. So Solomon, though, he is concerned as a good Jewish boy his whole life he was always told that there was a why. He knew that there was a good God who was watching over his whole planet, his whole earth, and his whole reality. He knew that. But now he's actually seeing 
that he feels that life is meaningless, that it has no point, that it has no purpose, that what he expects is different from the way things are. He continues in verses 9 through 11, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So he talks about the futility of something new. Now, when we talk about new things, Apple just had their little uh, tech thing today, and I'm going to watch it. It's like two hours long, but I'm going to watch it. And I think it's when Tim Cook goes up there and he says this, we just came out with the iPhone 14, we just came out with the Apple Watch, we just came out with the new AirPods. Now, did Solomon have an iPhone 14 and an Apple Watch and AirPods? No, right? So what does he mean, nothing's new? There's been nothing new. And I think what he says, he even says later in the chapter, I became greater than all who were before me in Jerusalem. So Solomon clearly knows that there can be new things. But I think what he means is, is something more fundamental. Nothing is ever truly new. And so because if I have an iPhone 14, right, is that new? Oh yeah, brand spanking. I don't think they even release them yet. But is revolutionizing technology new? No. The iPhone 11 did that. The iPhone 10 did that. You know, phone did that. The telegraph did that. The horse and buggy did that. Rhodes did that. The wheel did that, right? Where's the moment where I can point to that said, this was the first moment that we actually revolutionized technology? The point is not whether or not it did happen. The point is that you can actually never say to yourself when it did happen. And that just means when we get into verses 12 through 15, Solomon says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek out and to search what is by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. So Solomon's going through and trying to understand the way things are and what is his summation. It is an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. That's his final, you know, that's the end. That's what he says, you know, I've looked at everything. There's just no point. It's, an, it's unhappy. Okay, so I'll tell you this about my life. <clears throat> I started school. I'm working 30 hours, and I have 17 credit hours of school, and I have to study. So I woke up this morning at 7 to go to school, and I, I literally did as much schoolwork as I could in the breaks and whatever. And then we're at Thrive Together, which you guys are just as busy as I am. And I still have stuff that's due tonight before 11.59. Okay, now is that going to get done and I'm going to be like, yes, done. Sure, maybe. What happens tomorrow? Starts all over again. What happens the day after that? Starts all over again. And it's going to happen like that for again and again and again and again. And there are times, not just Christian McCartney's life, there are times in your life where you say to yourself, oh my gosh. I'm done. I cannot stand this anymore. If I have to go to school one more time and listen about blah, 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 blah. If I have to go to the work and this guy's going to tell me this thing again, I'm going to pop. I'm going to snap. Solomon sees that, right? He sees that in his life. He says, it is an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with because life feels meaningless. I'm just going to school and I'm going to get my doctorate and then I'm going to get my doctorate and then I'm going to go to med school and then I'm going to go to med school and then I'm going to become a surgeon and then I'm going to become a surgeon and then I'm going to have a wife and kids and a house and a car and then I'm going to die. Great. Good job, Christian. That's a perfect, you know, great. That's life. That's meaning. That's filled with meaning, right? Solomon sees the way that we feel, that we feel like that sometimes. And Solomon is saying, yeah, that's what it feels like. And Solomon's going to focus a lot on what it feels like. And my hope is that 
Um, we'll go to some place in the New Testament every week and kind of talk about, although it feels this way, although it feels that life is meaningless, although it feels that we don't have a purpose or a plan, that God actually has something infused in the meaninglessness. Um, and because that sometimes, you know, as Christians, sometimes we think that, you know, the sun rises and the sun sets and it's just given this God-ordained path, which it is. But sometimes the sun just appears to rise and set. Okay, I have this Macbeth quote, but I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to read the last two lines. Sorry, I don't have it memorized yet. <clears throat> it's there. It talks about, oh, no, after that. There it is. Okay, this is Macbeth. I hated that when I read it, and then I was like, oh, my gosh, this part is so good. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts, that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And Shakespeare, 1600, was like, hey, life feels like it's a lot of noise, a lot of stuff that's going on, but it doesn't feel like it really means anything. And Solomon feels this. He feels like this is his number one issue. Why do we want meaning and yet find none? He says finally in verses um, the rest, what is crooked cannot be straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I love that last verse, that he who increases knowledge increases sorrow, because it's not like the more that you know, the less life seems, you know, stupid. The more that you actually understand about the nature of how the world works, scientifically, whatever, logically, the actually more meaningless it feels. Um, and we're going to end with that part because the book doesn't really get more encouraging as you go along. Um, in Romans, and this isn't on the screen, in Romans, when they translated the Hebrew Bible into the Greek, it's called a Septuagint, that translation, because they say 70 scholars got together, translated the entire Old Testament, and they came out, and they all had the same translation. That's why it's called the Septuagint. Anyway, the word that they translate, vanity, is then translated into the Greek as we would render futility. Paul then says in Romans, for the creation was subjected to futility. Okay, not willingly, right? How many of you like to feel that your life has no meaning sometimes? Oh, wow, that's weird. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, not because he wanted to, but because of him who subjected it and hoped that the creation itself might be set free from its bondage to corruption. And so the reason our world sometimes feels like it's meaninglessness, that there's no point, that there's no hope, that there's no you know, guy in the sky who's, who's uh, predestining everything, people always say, I want proof, I want proof, I want proof. And one of the things that I always think to, at least in my head, is that the reason that we don't have proof is because life feels too meaningless otherwise. There's no meaning. Why not, right? Like I said, if this is the way that life has always been, why don't we feel happy? Why don't we feel, you know, with normal worldly things, why don't we feel happy? Well, Paul says that God subjected creation to this feeling. Why? Because nothing actually is going to give us hope and fulfillment because God doesn't want us to give us hope and fulfillment because if we got hope and fulfillment from the things in our life now, we would never want what God has planned for us in the future, right? And we can all, you know, bear witness to that. But he says, but the creation has been subjected to this futility, to this vanity, and hope 
that creation one day will be set free, not only from its bondage to this vanity, to this meaninglessness, but from its bondage to corruption, from sin. And so in heaven, you know, when we get to heaven, everything's going to feel like completely different, of course, but it's going to be like we don't have to struggle with this vanity anymore. And as, you know, it's funny, in our age group, I was looking up, the second leading cause of death is suicide. The first is like accidents, you know, drugs, car accidents, things like that. The second one is suicide in our age group. Why? Right? We're in America. We, can, we have eat. We have clothes on our back. Why? Because there are people, and you may have been one of them, you know, they have a hotline that I've called. I can't tell how many times. It's a great, you know, suicide hotline you can call if you just need someone to talk to. But why? Because we feel this in our heart that, gosh, I'm just, I'm just going to do this again and again and again, and life has no purpose and no meaning. Without God, that's how we, how we all were. In Jesus Christ, now we have purpose, now we have meaning. But sometimes it's helpful to read to somebody who just like, it does feel like this though sometimes. It do be like that, you know, people say that. Sometimes it, it sucks, but sometimes that's just the way it is, and we need to realize in our minds that God has already planned a future that's, that exists in our bodies and in our lives and for, for our future. So I know that's not encouraging, but I hope it is at least in some way to you all. Um, we're going to pray, and we're going to have Ethan come back up and sing. Um, if you have any questions, talk to me after. Um, God, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful that we have a God who just doesn't tell us how we should feel, who doesn't just you know, mandate us to feel the way that we should, the way that we ought, but we have a God who, just, who bears our emotions and our feelings with us. That even when life does feel vain and when it doesn't feel like it has a point, doesn't feel like it has a reason, um, there is a reason, there is a point, there is a purpose. Because God, you died for us and you died so that we wouldn't have to feel that way anymore. And you died so that we could uh, glorify you, which is exactly where we ought to be. And we're so thankful for your word here, God. And we're so thankful for your son and for your spirit who convicts us in all these things. I just pray that you would guide everyone and give them a spirit of encouragement as they leave tonight. And if they have the, any questions, God, that they would have boldness to come up to me or to search the scriptures for themselves. We love you, God, and we pray that um, in everything that we do that we would just give you honor and glory. In your son's name, amen.